Business leaders today face extraordinary challenges. Here are just a few big ones. Inflation, climate change, supply chain chaos, fast-changing technologies, war in Europe, workforce upheaval. My guest this time runs a global investment company based in Asia. He says a clear sense of purpose is critical for companies to succeed in such disruptive times. Hi, everyone. This is Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. I'm Ranjay Gulati, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. My guest, Dylan Pillay, is the CEO and executive director of Temasek Holdings in Singapore. Temasek is owned by the government of Singapore. It has a portfolio of more than $400 billion. Temasek invests in a wide range of industries, real estate, financial services, telecom, media, agriculture, among others. It is the majority owner of Singapore Airlines and a number of other prominent companies. And that's just a slice of Temasek's portfolio. When I first visited Temasek in Singapore, it puzzled me that investors would care about purpose and about the broader role of business in society. But I learned that Temasek is on the frontier helping businesses situate their role in society, while at the same time delivering on their commitment to their shareholders. Meanwhile, Temasek went on an inner journey of its own to clarify its purpose and how that purpose animates Temasek employees. When Dylan Pillay looks at the business horizon, he sees a score of issues confronting executives today. And he unfolded for me a remarkably coherent view of that vast horizon. Let's listen. But first, let me say that the last 40 years have been an incredible period of peace and prosperity for the world as a whole probably unprecedented in the history of time, that we've had such a long period where there's been relative peace and prosperity, uplifting of, of uh, billions of people uh, into the middle class, and basically the uplifting of le- living standards in almost every country in the world. Uh, I think that's something we should bear in mind. And what we're seeing today is the convergence of a number of external events which have truly caused um, you know, ripple effects leading to disruptive effects across political, social, and economic dimensions. If you asked me back in 2019, would I have seen in my lifetime a period when my movements would be restricted, I would not be able to see loved ones across the oceans, uh, I would not be able to travel for business, etc. I would say, uh, you know, not possible. And yet that's exactly what we went through for most of 2020 and 2021. But that was not the only thing that we were facing. We already were facing challenges to our business models, the need to uh, to change business models to be in line with a new tech-enabled world, one where we ourselves had to be tech-enabled, not just from in a, in a business sense, but even individually, in order to be able to continue uh, to evolve as a society. Uh, and and that, that was the first challenge we had, even in 2019. And as we thought about Industry 4.0 and how we bring companies along on that journey, we had to think about the workforce as well. And, and that social cost, of, of transitioning into new business models was something that we all had to think about, not just governments or businesses as well. Because at the end of the day, if we truly believe in multi-stakeholder capitalism, we have to take into account the effects of business model changes on our employees, on our suppliers, 
on the communities in which we operate, and not just in, re in relation to returns for our shareholders uh, and compensation for, uh, for, for business leaders. And if I then go forward, you then had COVID-19, and we're still in a pandemic world. Uh, we're getting used to living in a pandemic world, so it's an endemic, perhaps an endemic world that we are, think that we are in today. But uh, is this really exogenous shocks? For a long time, people have been talking about us uh, having to be prepared for a pandemic. And we've sort of fobbed it off because we said, well, you know, it's not happened. That whatever something has happened has been contained. It's been more regional than global. And so when COVID-19 happened, happened, it was a real shock to the system. Just consider the amounts that governments had to put in to stimulate the economy, to keep businesses going, to keep people employed, to make sure that people had food on the table. Phenomenal, phenomenal stimulus that had gone into every single country's budget in order to make that available to businesses and individuals out there. But the pandemic could be said to be foreseeable. And in an interconnected world, a globally interconnected world, where we travel across oceans, why would we be thinking that something that starts in Asia would not find its way to all parts of the world? It would not be logical if you think about what it means to be in a globally connected world. And so the pandemic is the second thing, but post-pandemic world is also a different issue for, uh, there are different issues for us to consider. Uh, will there be rising nationalism? What will be the social polity? What will be the relationship between government and people? Will we see a re-emergence of the social contract as a result of government stimulus that went into keeping businesses going in order to keep society cohesive? These are big questions for us, not just for, uh, for governments, but also for businesses to think about as we engage um, not just employees, but also the communities in which we operate. But then again, we now are, are, are uh, facing the issue of rising inflation, increasing possibilities of stagflation, increasing possibilities of recessions in various uh, geographies around the world. Because again, we're interconnected world. Supply chain disruptions starting from someplace in Asia have a knock-on effect everywhere in the world, not just in Asia, but in the US and Europe, etc. And then we've got the, the prospects of rising uh, interest rates. And that means that we are potentially looking at a world with lower growth, as the World Bank and IMF have suggested, but also lower returns. But if inflation gets to be at an elevated level for a long time, and if we see stagflation or we see recessions, then the consumption patterns will change, the consumer will be impacted, and that has knock-on effects as well all over the world, including supply chains, and that will exacerbate situations like that. So we have to think about these things. We also have to think about geopolitical issues. It used to be a time when investors like us thought, well, geopolitical issues is something we keep in mind, but don't have to really delve into in detail to understand the knock-on effects. I think that has changed. It's not just US-China. It's not just Russia-Ukraine. It's the fact that geopolitical events are going to be part and parcel of the future. We are going to see um, the change is a constant, and we have to get comfortable with ambiguity. And that ambiguity will arise as a result of these geopolitical shifts as well. So these are things that we are thinking about, and we have to think about whether we are effectively going to see a decoupling, decoupling in supply chains, decoupling you know, in financial systems perhaps, uh, decoupling in terms of globalization you know, from a global trading block to regional trading blocks. These are all things that we have to think about. So increasingly, CEOs have to not just look at strategic planning for businesses on a three to five year time frame. Allocation of capital is never given uh, for, I mean, generally not given for a period extending five years. But perhaps now we have to spend more time on scenario planning. So that can actually help us think about what the long term looks for us 
and how we keep an eye on the long term while we deal with the short term issues that we have to uh, we have to take into consideration as we build our businesses. We believe that purpose helps you withstand the shorter term shocks that you may face as you go along that journey towards your longer term goals. It's worked for us in Tamasic. We do think that it does work for many organizations. We do encourage our companies to think about purpose, but we do not mandate it, even for the companies who own 100%. As a seasoned investor, Dylan Pillay knows that a strong management team is an essential component of a successful business. I asked him what he looks for in leadership. What are the critical skills today's leaders must have in the global business environment he just laid out for us? CEOs have to have a strong sense of purpose. And if they have a strong sense of purpose, they bring that to the organization and it becomes organizational purpose. They bring their employees along with them on that purpose journey. I think that's critical. You know, whatever your strategies are, whatever you think you're going to be doing in the next 10 years, if you don't have that solidified by a purpose of in the company, you're not going to be able to pull your, your employees with you on that journey. No, you know, it's very difficult to be a CEO today if you're trying to be an imperial CEO and say, this is where we're going, let's charge, let's move forward. You have to bring people along because organizations today uh, have evolved and individuals have the ability to move around and look for other opportunities. So if you want to still be an employer of choice, you have to reach out, communicate effectively, bring people along on your, uh, on your journey, uh, your purpose journey, but, and therefore the, the organization's purpose journey as you look into implementing these strategies for long-term value. CEOs have to have their eye on long-term value because it's only when you look at long-term value that you can deal with the shorter-term issues and figure out whether they actually are going to end up being existential issues for you or are there going to be growth issues for you? So do you think purpose is kind of a forcing mechanism to get these people to think about their long-term goals? At the same time, it becomes a rallying cry to attract talent and bring good people to join you? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both, isn't it? It serves as a way of, of, of having a marker uh, for you as to where you're going and to explain why you're going on that journey, why you have the objective that you've set forward, and then you bring people along. It's a rallying cry for everyone to come around that stated objective and let's move together. For example, climate change, right? If you have to, if you accept that climate change is an existential issue on multiple levels, including for your company, then you, you have to have a strategy around climate change, mitigation, adaptation, and transition. And you have to then explain to your to workforce why it's important to address it now. What are the knock-on effects of addressing it now? How we're going to go on a journey to achieve adaptation and, and transition? And what's the cost to us and what's the benefit? Without doing that, I don't see how you're going to bring uh, your, your folks along with you on that journey, which is a multi-year journey, and how you're going to bring along different generations of leaders on that journey because the objective will be met far beyond your tenure as a CEO. And that's what you have to focus on. Tamasek's purpose is to do well, do right, do good, so every generation prospers. You have made sustainability a key initiative. And right from the get-go, you set ambitious targets not only for Tamasek, but also for your portfolio companies for the decades to come from 2030 and onwards. And now you're even measuring yourself on carbon-adjusted returns. 
is this good for business? What percentage of value of your portfolio is really moving in this direction? Tell us a bit more about your efforts and why you see this as important for Temasek to do. I think, first of all, our journey on sustainability started before I, I took over as CEO of the company. Uh, it started with my predecessor and I was part of her team. And we, we agreed that this is an important issue for us to address. In fact, it was part of what we called our T2020 journey, which started in 2011. But it really took momentum after 2016, after the Paris Agreement uh, at the end of 2015. And we accepted that this would be a multi-year effort to go forward. And I'm, co I'm continuing that journey that we started back in 2016. So it's an evolutionary process for us. I think that's the first thing uh, I want to say. It's a journey even for Tomasek. Tomasek sees its role as a provider of capital as a party that will join others, investors, financiers, governments, etc., in contributing to the, towards achieving net zero 2050 and the carbon goals that are needed to be achieved in interim period to reach net, net zero 2050. That means we have to make sure our capital is catalytic for that purpose as well. So we've set, aside, we've set certain targets for ourselves as an institution. Uh, the first is that we've said, okay, you know, we'll be net neutral every year from now on and we uh, and since 2020 which we've been doing the second is that we've said in 2030 the emissions attributable to us in our entire portfolio will be half of what it, it was in 2010 uh, and it's not easy to reach a target because we own 55 percent of an airline so that's incredibly di a difficult target the third is we said we'll be net zero in 2050. now to achieve that we're doing a number of things first of all we've set up and set out an internal uh, cost of carbon which we, which we now impose on all of our investments. Uh, it's looked at in the context of things that we're evaluating and things that we eventually close. So that cost is today $42 US per ton of CO2 equivalent, and it's going to rise, and we anticipate that by 2030, it'll be $100 per ton uh, of CO2 equivalent. We are going to put that into the cost of capital. Right now, it's taken as a charge against the total emissions we have, you know, against our portfolio returns for compensation purposes. But eventually, we will roll it out in our cost of capital framework so that every investment has the right cost of capital in terms of how we allocate our capital across the sectors and the markets that we invest in. So that's the first thing that we've done. The second thing is that we've set aside a significant amount of capital every year to invest in sustainability-focused sectors, food, water, waste, energy, materials. Uh, the built environment, and uh, clean transportation. And that's going to be part of our, um, our focus in terms of our portfolio construction for the end of the decade. Next, we've decided that we would invest in sustainable solutions. Now, this is first. Of, there's a focus on energy. So therefore, investing in uh, hydrogen, you know, uh, making sure that green hydrogen becomes a reality in as close a time as possible, joining with promising startups with, with established companies to see what can be done in that in, in that respect, bringing down the, the carbon abatement cost curve for, for hydrogen as much as possible, contributing towards that as much as possible. You know, we, we want to look at carbon capture, utilization, storage solutions, because that's going to be important in reaching uh, the 1.5 degree world that we hope that we aspire to, to achieve. Uh, we're looking at sustainable aviation fuels. As I mentioned, we, we own an airline. That's going to be critical in addressing carbon emissions in aviation. And we're looking at the issues of, of, of nuclear energy as, as a form of clean energy, and perhaps the emergence of nuclear fusion as a reality uh, in, the, in the longer horizon. So these are some of the things that we're doing. At the same time, we believe that sustainable financing is important. It's important, especially in emerging markets, 
Because emerging markets, very often the issue is affordability rather than the desire to transition into a greener uh, energy source. And we have to figure out ways in which capital can be brought to bear uh, for the development and construction of uh, green infrastructure in order to allow for green energy to be made available, especially in, in, my, in my part of the world. And so we're looking at initiatives in which that can be done. So, you know, effectively, most of these projects are monetary bankable. The question is, how do we make them bankable? You know, so can we be catalytic in that respect? We also began to invest in impact invest, investments in about, uh, about three years ago. Today, we have uh, significant stakes in two firms uh, that uh, invest a total of almost, uh, you know, almost uh, $1.5 billion. And that's important for us because as much as we're looking at the E part for sustainability, we have to also address the S part as well. So these are geared towards impact for communities as against impact for climate. Um, the number of other initiatives we have, um, I can roll them off for you, but we decided that COVID-19 should not hold us back from initiating these, uh, these projects we had in mind. And so we started to execute all through 2020 into 2021 and continuing. And this will be a multi-year multi journey and perhaps even, I would say, a multi-decade journey. Dylan, do you think uh, some of these initiatives, which really sound impressive, are they coming at the expense of financial returns? Are you saying that, look, you know, this is good for business, uh, good for uh, the sustainability, and so we're willing to kind of take a knock uh, over here on financial returns. Uh, you know, you've got the carbon adjustment that you do. Is that affecting your overall portfolio performance in terms of narrow financial metrics? So the question you have to ask ourselves is this. Are you looking only at short-term financial returns? Are, are you looking at long-term sustainable returns? Our mandate is focused on the latter. You know, we are here to deliver long-term sustainable returns for our shareholder. And in the context of being able to, uh, to deliver those returns, we will also be able to allocate a significant part of it towards our strategies for giving back to the communities in which we operate, through our foundation in particular. So if we are focused on long-term sustainable returns, then what is the value of the company in a world that has to deal with climate change, mitigation, adaptation, and transition? That is a big question for us. So as we think about the future value of things we're investing in today, then you have to think about a carbon-adjusted financial performance of that company, uh, especially if you're thinking about what would come in, into play to allow us to get into a 1.5 degree world, which includes things like policy frameworks, to govern, which will have a knock-on effect on business models uh, and, and, and sectors uh, in each country. And it will affect supply chains. You just think about the carbon border adjustment mechanism that, that the EU is putting in place. Uh, but more importantly, uh, it is important for us um, to think about it in the context of, uh, of making sure that we are not invested, not just in stranded assets, but stranded business models which eventually may not be viable because of these policy frameworks, which by the way, include carbon taxes. Huh? So if carbon taxes is a reality, if that's in your scenario, the carbon taxes is a reality, it will be part of global trade, for example, it will be part of, of, the, of the veracity and effectiveness of global supply chains, then you have to factor in a cost of carbon to determine whether the allocation of capital by these companies in their growth takes into account these sort of things and gets you the desired returns that you're looking for to justify the investment you're making today. Yeah? If you're going to invest in an airline today, well, if you invest in an airline a few months ago, you're probably done well in terms of equity performance now since the world has opened up to air travel. And if you sell out in the next two to three months, you know, good for you. You probably had a pretty good return 
uh, probably outdoing the S&P 500. But if you're like Tomasic, if you're like us and you own 55% of the airline, you can't just sell it in the marketplace, you know, just because the performance has done well in the last three months. You have to think about your ownership of this entity for the next seven or eight years and beyond. And then the question, what would the value of this entity be in 2030 if, in fact, due to Corsair re uh, regulations and other things that could come in place, carbon, carbon cost is a real cost of business. What would be the value of that, of that entity at the end of 2030? So yes, there is a premium being paid today in that journey, but are you going to be able to recover it on a relative basis in the future? Okay, now I don't know what relative returns are going to be like in, the, in, in 2030 because that depends on where you see the beta of the market in a very different world that's, that's emerging. Um, but on a relative basis, uh, your, is your portfolio going to do better than the benchmarks that you hold yourself against? While having a clear long-term vision is critical, every business leader also has to think about short-term results. There's no getting around it. I asked Dylan what advice he has for purpose-driven CEOs who are under pressure to deliver short-term profits. It's not easy, especially if you're the CEO of a public company, publicly listed company, right? Because the markets demand that you deliver shorter-term performance, yet you are thinking about long-term business models because that's your job as a CEO. Job as a CEO is to be a strategist. And it's just not about business model strategy. You got to think about workforce strategy, talent strategy, its strategy, right, as a CEO. And then you have to make sure that that strategy you have can be operationalized in a way in which the business can move forward and have the growth that is in line with its sector or can outdo its sector, and in, in particular, global growth uh, that is set out there as a marker for us to, uh, to look at uh, as investors. It's not easy for CEOs to be able to juggle between that natural job of the CEO to be strategic and the other role of the CEO to deliver the shorter term performance. But the important thing is to have in place the right set of shareholders are here to support you with respect to your strategy and your business model evolution. That requires very clear communication to the marketplace. That requires very clear communication to all your stakeholders. Where you are taking the company towards, why you're taking it that direction, what is the long-term value you expect to get from that journey? And that is very important because it's not just shareholders who need to hear it. Your employees need to hear it. Your suppliers need to hear it because they're your business partners. The communities in which you operate will want to hear it because you do have uh, a need to contribute to, to your community. So it's important to communicate that. You know, I, I believe that the first and foremost thing is to communicate things internally so everybody understands where you're headed. Remember, I spoke about purpose and, and how that undergirds your strategy going forward. That's the first thing. That's very critical because you've got to bring along your institution. And then the second is to make sure you communicate in the marketplace. Everybody understands where you're headed. You know, we, we are always fixated on metrics. Huh? I mean, in a sense, uh, short-term results are very metrics-oriented. You know, and Ranjay, you being a business school professor, you know how the importance of metrics has evolved over decades where, such, where today it becomes almost like a religious mantra for many of us. Huh? But Metrics are important in some areas where you can truly measure it for the outcomes that you want to see. Okay, like for example, if you look at ESG, the E can clearly be, uh, be determined by reference to metrics. You set up what are metri metrics you, you want to hold yourself to, and you can report on those every year because they can be measured. 
yeah, to, to a large extent. When you look at the S part, it's not easy to, to have metrics for S, but that's where the narrative becomes important, and the G as well. The narrative is very crit critical. And then as you get a narrative out, you then over time will release metrics to show where you are in the context of achieving what you've set out to do in a narrative that you've shared with the broader marketplace. I think that's important. Let's talk about Temasek's purpose. In the last year, you've taken the organization on a year-long journey, and you talked about excavating your purpose as kind of a, a culmination of this. Tell us a little more about this journey and why you decided it was important for you uh, at Temasek to really undertake this journey. So for the senior manager of Temasek, we've been very clear what our purpose is. Our purpose actually is embodied within our charter, which is on our website. That charter was put in place in 2012. It sets out the three roles that Temasek sets for itself, that of being an investor, that of being a forward-looking institution, and that of being a steward. Our aim is to do well as an investor, to do right as a forward-looking institution, and to do good as a steward. I would say first and foremost, you can't do right and do good unless you're doing well. Is there a distinction between, uh, say, sustainability and returns? You know, Well, the doing well, long-term sustainable returns is critical in whatever we do in order to be able to do the right things and in order to be able to contribute to communities in which we operate. And in that context, we had expanded geographically where we have a significant presence in both the US and Europe. We've expanded our presence in China and in India. And we also expanded our numbers in Singapore as well. And in order to make sure that we are a fully connected organization, it's not just about being connected physically, connected uh, in terms of technology and, and being able to connect across the organization using uh, technology aids like Zoom and Teams. We have to be connected by something that holds us together and that underpins the values, culture, and beliefs that we have in order to be an exceptional organization. And so purpose became the way in which we could achieve that. And we wanted to make sure people understood what Tamasic internally, what Tamasic stands for and why we see ourselves as going beyond that of investing. And therefore, we're not like a private equity firm or a typical investment house. We do more things than just that. You know, we quote a, a, former, a, a former member of our, of our founding leadership in Singapore. We do everything today with tomorrow clearly on our minds. And so when we think about what we do, not just in terms of investing, but as an institution, as a steward, we do that. And, that, and why do we do it? So every generation prospers. And so that's where we are today. I've been studying and writing for some time now about the need for companies to have a clear and deep purpose. Coming up with just the right words is hard, but putting those words into action, bringing the purpose statement alive, that's something else altogether. I asked Dylan Pillay how he and his colleagues have done that in such a geographically dispersed organization as Temasek. It's based in Singapore, but has offices across the globe. So that's the, the most interesting part of this journey, right? Uh, now that we've, got, we've landed on the statement, how do we make it real for us? How do we make it authentic? You know, and that's what we're now embarking on as a, as a second phase. We're actually uh, putting in place right now a framework for us to have this rolled out throughout the organization. 
in, in, in terms of everything that we do, every function that we have, uh, every activity we undertake, and try to ensure that when we undertake these things, people have in mind the reason why we're doing it, the why. Yeah? And of course, you, you can't, you know, it's not like in everything, okay, is this in line with our purpose? Otherwise, we won't do it. No, that's not it. But is your purpose at the end of the day going to be achieved by the things that you do, each one of us individually? Will it contribute towards the organization achieving its purpose of every generation prospers over the longer term? Will it help us achieve the objectives that are important uh, that we've set out to achieve and for which a purpose explains uh, the things that we're doing? That's not easy, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, it needs to be uh, systematically approached. You know, and we need to put it, make, it, make sure that it is um, put out in a way where it's authentic. You know, I do not want to check the box kind of thing because that is totally, totally a mistake. Because when you do that and nobody then believes it, all the work that we've done is worth nothing. So that's the challenge for us to make sure that when we roll it out, it, is, it comes to a very high level of authenticity. But that's going to make it stick. I've heard it said by some business experts that purpose is a waste of time because it is indeterminate, it's unenforceable, and it embraces seemingly conflicting objectives causing more rather than less confusion in an organization. I asked Dylan what he thinks about this. If you sit back there and you look at it from an intellectual perspective, you can come to that conclusion, okay? Um, but remember, things are never forever. You know, we set out this charter 10 years ago because we were re-looking at our purpose and that's how we came up with it in 2012. Through the purpose conversation, it still remains relevant. It doesn't mean it stayed the way it is. It's been fine-tuned, but it is still the relevant issue because it's still the guiding light for us. In 2030, we'd have to go through another year-long purpose, long conversation because the world would have changed. You know, and then you've got to figure out whether the importance of climate change takes a little bit more importance than what you than what you put on it before and things like that. And that's going to also drive perhaps a reformulation of the purpose or perhaps uh, a reformulation of the framework that governs your purpose. I cannot, I cannot put in place something today that's going to bind future generations of, of Tomasic leaders and, and Tomasic employees because we've been put in leadership for our time in the, in the history of our organization. My colleagues and I okay, belong to a particular generation. We will have to pass the baton on to a newer generation. We want to, we want to make sure we pass on an institution that's strong in everything that it does with very strong foundations so they can build on the foundations. We believe that the purpose we've set out, which will undergird the, the strategies we have, will establish a strong and resilient organization in 2030 for that new generation to take over and build upon what we've done to create an even better organization. Now, let me switch from Temasek to portfolio companies. You said earlier that business leaders today should really think about their purpose because it will make them more resilient in dealing with the, the tribulations and the ups and downs of today's turbulent times. Do you advocate companies that find their own purpose or are you advancing your own agenda saying, hey, look at my purpose, your purpose should look like mine? Or are you saying, just have one, I don't care what's in it, uh, just as long as you articulate a purpose for yourselves. Each company has its own journey. Far be it for us to advocate or dictate something to them. And like I said, if you're going to have a purpose, it has to be, it has to be uh, authentic. But it's got to be relevant in context of the journey that you've decided to, to take on. And how you decide to bring your organization along with you to achieve those objectives is determined by you and your board 
And, and I'm not going to tell you that you should take our purpose and make it yours. That would be, I think, uh, a travesty. If you decide that the way to bring your organization along with you is to have that sense of purpose in your organization, then undertake the journey that you need to undertake in the way that you have to put it in place. You don't have to follow what we are doing. Can you talk about your own personal purpose and how have you come to the place you are in and what has been the arc of your personal purpose journey uh, as you have evolved in your career? I think the first thing I would say is that uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. Okay, I'll start off with that. So as, as I've seen in my own career, as I've, given more, as I've been given more and more responsibility, I felt the burden of responsibility not the elation of the office, <laughs> but the burden of the responsibilities that, that are embodied within, within that role that I have. And I, I recognize that the most important thing for me to do is to be principled in everything I do. Yeah? I may not get it right, but I've got to be principled. I've got to be honest. I've got to have humility. I've got to acknowledge my weaknesses. I've got to make sure that I complement my weaknesses with strength from other people. Therefore, I need to know that I can't do things on my own. I have to bring people in with me in leadership and sometimes share the mantle of leadership with them, even if I'm the CEO, and be willing to do so. Because no one individual has a suite of skills to be able to deliver in its entirety what organization needs. I'm the leader of a team. I, you could say that I'm first amongst equals. And that means when I want to do something, I bring them along with me. Whatever success I've had is due to a team, not to me. There's no way I could have achieved what I, I achieved without the contributions of many others. The unsung heroes, perhaps, who did not have the, the role that I have and therefore did not get the credit that I got. Are there people in your life who really inspired you and shaped your purpose and uh, really all crucible moments in your life that really have really brought you to the kind of person you are and leader you are today? I'm a Christian. So for me, you know, uh, Jesus Christ is, uh, is the most important. But there have been people in my, in my life who have been superb examples for me to follow, have been great mentors to me, and their colleagues who have been sounding boards, but more so fellow travelers on a journey who understand me, understand what I'm like, willing to accept me for who I am and therefore able to, to help me overcome my, my, my weaknesses. Uh, and they've been great, not just supporters, but actually mentors in their own way. So there have been many, many people in my life who've contributed to, to these things. And I can't name just a few because it will be, I'll be doing a disservice to the others. And I continue to have these people in my life today because, you know, your, your life is made up of many different journeys. I'm on I'm on a particular journey now. And with each journey, you have the people who've traveled with you a long way, but you have the, the people who've joined you on this new journey. And they continue to inspire me uh, as I go forward. I've argued throughout the podcast that courage is an essential companion to purpose. With all of the challenges facing business leaders, it's virtually impossible to achieve your purpose without a deep well of courage. 
To that, Dylan Pillay adds another critical leadership trait, tenacity. The first time a curveball gets thrown at you, what are you going to do? You know? So you've got to be tenacious in what, you, in, in, in what you believe in, because that's what leaders are supposed to be. We're supposed to be tenacious. We're supposed to have courage. We're supposed to be comfortable with ambiguity, because if we're not comfortable with ambiguity, the organization can't get comfortable with ambiguity. And we have to recognize that the world is always changing, and we have to ride with those changes. You know, leadership requires a lot of individual, and no individual, like I said, has the full suite of capabilities required for the job at hand. So you have to be willing to um, embrace uh, the need to have a good core team around you, side by side with you, to achieve what you want to achieve. That's my, my goal. Dylan Pillay is the CEO and Executive Director of Temasek Holdings in Singapore, an investment firm owned by the government of Singapore with a portfolio of more than $250 billion. I think it's fascinating that investors care about purpose as well as making money. Granted, Temasek is a sovereign wealth fund that is enlightened. It looks carefully at investment returns, but also its role in society and the planet. The real question for the future is, can Tamasic achieve both? You've been listening to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. You can go to my website for more of my conversations with leaders in the business world navigating the 21st century business environment. You can also find out about my book titled Deep Purpose. That's deeppurpose.net. This podcast is produced by Stephen Smith with help from Lauren Modelski, Melissa Duncan, Craig McDonald, and John Bath. The theme music is by Gary Meister. I'm Ranjay Gulati.